welcome to Healing the Patriarchy with Love podcast. I'm your host, Luna, and together we're becoming rebels of the heart, one show at a time. Hello, rebels of the heart. Thank you for coming back. We're still on the theme of death today. And we're still on the theme of death today because in the UK, death is still quite a taboo. Um, Lots of people are frightened of it and maybe don't even realise that they're frightened of it. And we don't know what to say or do when somebody dies. And say somebody posts on Facebook, someone they love has died. Underneath it, you will see lots and lots of comments and all they ever say is, sorry for your loss. Thinking of you, send in love and prayers, hold on to your memories. And these are all very relevant and nice things to say. And I've caught myself saying those things. But what I noticed with myself when I was saying those things, I wasn't in my heart. So I wasn't letting, I wasn't letting the words flow from my heart and I wasn't in my heart because I'm scared of death and I'm frightened of the pain of grief. And I think that's the case for an awful lot of people. And because of that, and because I know everybody dies, (laughs) we all die and we all lose people who we love to death because that's what happens. So I wanted to talk about it. I want us to talk about it. (laughs) Let's talk about death. So today I'm going to talk about my dad's death because when my dad died I think it's a similar situation to what a lot of people go through when a loved one dies and I wanted to kind of provide that um, camaraderie you know Uh, I know what it's like and I know how painful it is and I also know that some people that are listening maybe you've lost someone you love suddenly And I know that that's very hard because you don't get the preparation. You don't get to ready and steady yourself. Um, My dad took a while to die. So I got the kind of the preparation. And each of those scenarios is difficult for different reasons. I can only talk from my own experience. So I'm going to talk about, you know, the length of time it took and what happened in that length of time and what I got from it and I hope that if you're listening and you're maybe going through it or if you have been through it we've all been through it at some stage that this will provide some comfort maybe some insight maybe some wisdom but more than anything I just don't want you to feel alone I want you to know that we all go through it so Maybe if you're going through it now, and I've been through it in the past, and there'll be other people that are going through it now too. And so there's always a group of people that know what it's like. And later on, I'm going to ask you to write in the comments, either on Spotify, if you're listening to this on Spotify, you can write in the comments, or on my Facebook page where I will be posting this, which is facebook.com forward slash Luna Louise Anna so you can write in the comments about your own experiences 
and we can all share there and just have a, a thread of love started there for everyone. Okay, so my dad died in 2017. And even though it's now 2022, and it was therefore some time ago, what I noticed was time doesn't exist in the realm of death. Because sometimes it feels like it was just this minute. And sometimes it feels like, what, did that even happen? <laughs> did it even happen? It sometimes feels like it's not even here with me in this lifetime anymore. So me and my dad had a difficult relationship. And we actually have a better one now he's in spirit. <laughs> I'll do a different I'll do a different episode about that because it's um it's interesting. But we have a, a better relationship now that he's in spirit and he knows that I'm doing this this episode and he's okay with it. And I'm not gonna go too much into what happened with my dad, except to say that he had himself a difficult childhood and that then that he played that pattern out on me. And it was a very different contract, soul contract that me and him had to what he had with the rest of the family and the rest of the world. So my experience of him wasn't good, whereas lots of other people had a very good experience of him because he, he wasn't a bad person. And I've worked a lot on forgiveness and that's what I'll do my other episode on because I've been working with him on spirit to get to that. So what happened was, <laughs> New Year's Eve, um, 2016, my dad is just indoors with my mum. He's already unwell at this stage, so he's already got quite severe chronic illnesses that are very debilitating to him. He's medically retired, um, but he's doing a lot of charity work. But other than that, his life has become very contracted and small. And I think anybody that knows about chronic illnesses or knows about death will know that either when you're chronically ill or any kind of um, lasting illness, you your life starts to get, it starts to shrink. Yeah. So that had happened, that had already happened with him. So he, he used to go out on New Year's Eve, but he wasn't out this New Year's Eve, probably just as well. Uh, my mum notices that he's not able to speak and he's slurring his words and his face has gone down to one side and she's panicked so she she's she's a nurse my mum used to be a nurse so she she knows oh my god you know 999 this is an emergency call an ambulance she calls the ambulance and they thankfully get there very fast and he's taken to hospital and he's had a stroke and this is a shock because not that much of it certainly not in my dad's side of the family there's a little bit in my mum's and it's a shock and everybody's really shaken within the family dynamic about this but he recovers quite well which is very like him He's, he was very resilient he used to recover from things very quickly you know it didn't really matter what happened in life he'd recover very quickly which is what I consider to be true resilience and it wasn't um not facing what was happening it wasn't that kind of resilience that's not really resilience it was he actually got through things quite quickly um his soul was just set up like that so that he could move through things quite quickly he he got quite well and then all of a sudden he's not well again and he's going to hospital and having difficult 
things in hospital they're turning him away saying that it's um a virus that he shouldn't have come to the hospital with and that he's going to spread it to everybody in the hospital and was tre actually treated terribly by the hospital staff and they missed a very obvious fact that it was actually um pancreatitis I think it was that he had and it was very obvious from where the pain was and his symptoms that he had that but they dismissed it and wouldn't listen and sent him home which then meant that he became very seriously unwell very unwell and he had to be taken in an ambulance again to the hospital again and had to be admitted to hospital and this was the start of lots and lots and lots of visits to hospital and if you if you've ever nursed somebody that's unwell you know what it's like they come home they seem a bit better and suddenly they're really unwell again and they get rushed into hospital again and then suddenly it's you're back to you know visits at hospital crisis management and praying that they get well then they get well and they come home and the same thing happens and it's on repeat and you feel like you're in a washing machine being rinsed over and over again and wrung out over and over again. And you're trying your best to ride the waves of the uncertainty and the unpredictability of life and therefore the uncertainty and the unpredictability of death. The two are so close. One minute it looks like they're going to be really well again and you think that they're actually going to have some kind of life and the next minute they're going to die and you're holding on for dear life through this awful process it's so painful it's excruciatingly painful your poor body it just feels so battered by the circumstances in view and the one thing that I learned was if when I tried to be with that, that situation with the part of me that wanted to control it, which essentially was my ego. Egos cannot control things. Well, actually, none of us can control things, but egos can't handle that they can't control things. You know, because they, they like to be the manager, don't they? <laughs> they like to be the boss, right? <laughs> so they want to be in control and they can't be. And what happens is if you go at it from that from that point of view trying to control it it's actually harder to deal with and if you go at it from a space of love from your heart space the circumstances don't change but your ability to cope gets better it gets amplified and it's really being amplified by the soul because I've talked about before how I believe that the heart is the portal to the soul. So when you lean into love and into your heart space, you're actually accessing the support of your soul, which is your wise inner being. It's the part of you that can handle uncertainty and unpredictability. And it's the part of you that can love you through the pain of watching somebody you love die. My dad was in and out of hospital, mostly in, mostly in, and in different ones as well. So sometimes we'd be rushing to Chorley Hospital, sometimes we'd be rushing to Royal Preston. Um, and I 
don't know if there was another one in between. No, I don't think there was actually. But it was confusing and always rushing from different places. And you know what it's like when you're working full time and things like that. It's really difficult to then have to drag yourself every night to a hospital. But that's what we did. We wanted to be there for him. And I was in a space with him that was very awkward because we didn't get on at all well compared to the rest of the family. And in fact, he was abusive to me. He abused me. Um, but he didn't he didn't do that, certainly not to the same degree with other family members. And I was like the scapegoat and they were all golden to him. I would have to go along and be the odd one out at the hospital. And it was very, very difficult. And then I and I was watching him die as well. And as I'm watching him die, I'm thinking, we really need to sort this out. We've really got to sort out, you know, what he's done to me, what he means to me, because I closed him off because he was abusive. So I was frightened of him um, and often felt a lot of pain from his actions and his behaviours that seemed to go completely unnoticed by anybody else, which also made me feel more isolated. So I closed myself off and I knew that as part of his death process, it was going to be best if I opened myself up. And again, this is why you need your heart space, because the ego is not going to manage opening up to someone who abused them. <laughs> no way can the ego handle that. So I tried to be in my heart space all the time. And oh God, it was oh, honestly hard. It was hard. I didn't find it easy at all. And eventually he becomes so ill that he's seeing a specialist and they think that his liver, which was non-alcoholic fatty liver, so he never drank. People always think he must have been an alcoholic, but he didn't drink. And he, he still died from liver problems, which people can't get their heads around, but that's what happened. And, and they realised that actually he's got cancer of the liver and that it's very far on. So it was stage four, which is the final stages. Um, and he was told, you've got weeks to live. Or we can do our best to find a transplant for you. And he very bravely said, let's go for a transplant then. And we were all shocked. And I think this isolation was even more apparent because I received the guidance from his soul that he was going to die on the operating table. And he literally showed me the picture of it, which was horrific. Blood, more blood than you can imagine flooding the theatre. So I was very frightened and didn't want him to take that route. But the rest of the family did. They say, oh, this is his best chance. It's his only chance. That's what the doctors have said. And it's obvious that that's his only chance. And he said, yeah, put me on the, put me on the list. And we already got, he was on the list and I went to see him 
after he decided to go on the list. And I think it was like the next day after he decided to go on the list. And I said to him, and I got some time alone with him. It's unusual for my mum to be out, but she wasn't. There was nobody else there. It's very unusual. And I took it as this is my chance. This is my chance to try and make peace with him. And do you know what? I tried, but I just wasn't brave enough to fully go there. And he was rejecting my my trying. He was rejecting it. And ultimately he said I should leave. And so I left, knowing that we hadn't made peace and knowing that he likely was going to die on the operating table. About a day or two later, I'm a bit confused with the days because it was so long ago now, but a day or two later, he gets the call. We found a brilliant match. It's absolutely perfect match. We couldn't hope for better. And so everybody's really excited. There's a brilliant match for him it's going to take a lot of recovery but we'll all chip in you know how you cling to hope you just cling to it don't you you cling to it when somebody's dying and it's all well by christmas because this was in august by christmas he'll be well and he'll be round the table being a nuisance like he always was <laughs> winding everybody up and he'll cook us a great meal like he always does and he'll be back to his old self. Because nobody wants to go with the flow that is taking us into the descent to death. And then the following morning, I'm woken up by my husband coming in and he's, um, sorry, he was my partner back then. And he's saying, wake up, are you awake? <laughs> I'm like, I'm up, what's the matter? And he's like, don't you ever check your phone? And I'm like, well, not really, no. <laughs> not really, no. It's always on silent, usually face down and somewhere in a different room, I don't bother with it. And he's like, you need to check it. And my brother-in-law had been contacting me and he was very kindly offering to drive because the hospital was in Leeds and we were in Preston in Lancashire. So um, they were in different counties and it was a long journey and not, not a very nice journey either. It's notoriously not a nice motorway to go on. So he very kindly offered to take us there. And we went there and I'm there thinking, he's going to die on the operating table. <laughs> oh, this is going to be horrendous. And everybody's in quite a upbeat celebratory mood. And yes, they're a bit tentative because none of us knew what was going to happen, of course. And hours and hours and hours and hours and hours went by. And it's starting to go dark and the hospital's gone quiet and we're the only ones in the reception area waiting. And we've done all the, you know, drinking coffee, looking at your phone, chatting to each other, saying I need a bit of fresh air and going outside that you can possibly do in those circumstances. And he should have been out of theatre some time ago. And his soul keeps coming to me and he keeps saying to me, all okay, it's all okay. And I'm looking at his soul and I'm thinking, you mean your version of all okay? <laughs> and your version of all okay is not the same version as mine. And eventually I suggest to my mum, should we ring them? you have a transplant coordinator when there's a transplant taking place should we ring them 
should we say, you know, about two hours over the time he was supposed to come out. Is he out yet? And so eventually we did. And they came back and said, there's been a lot of problems in the operating theatre. And I'm thinking, yeah, I bet that has. <laughs> I bet that has. And uh, she says, but we've, we've managed to get through. We've had to call the head honcho, who's the consultant that oversees all the transplants in the Northwest. And he's a top, top surgeon, like the best you could get. We had to, we had to um, page him and he's come in and now it's a bit more under control and he should be out in about an hour or two. So make your way up to intensive care unit then and we'll have him ready and you can see him very briefly then. So we wait a bit longer and then we go up to ICU and he's still not there. And you start thinking, this is really wrong. Something's not right here. But eventually a nurse comes through and she looks absolutely terrified and traumatised. And you think, oh my God, she's going to say he's dead. And she says, um, we're having difficulty stabilising him, but you can come and see him for five, ten minutes. So we grab the chance because all of us now are starting to get a sense. Maybe, just maybe, this isn't going to go to plan. And we go into the room to see him. And there's, you know what it's like. You've, you've maybe seen it in person or maybe just on the TV and there's all these tubes and machines and they're all bleeping and making noises and you don't know what anything is. And, and I'm, 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 I just stepped forward really tentatively because I was quite frightened in the space. It, there was a funny feeling in the space that was uncomfortable. And I kind of leant over to look at him and I went, oh my God. And I said, oh my God, they've put us in the wrong room. Let's not be dad. They've put us in the wrong room. We're in the wrong room. And I could sense some other man, some other soul who'd been a drinker. So I was like, well, that's, that's not him. That's not him. So I thought it was the soul of the man that was in front of me. <laughs> and my sister goes, oh, it's not him. Yeah, it's not him. And my mom comes sneaking up and she goes, oh yeah, they've put us in the wrong room. And she goes, oh, she goes, girls look. And we look at his wristband and it says, Rick Hall, which is my dad's name. And we're like, oh, it is him. It is him. And it was him. And he was about three times the size that he normally was. He looked like a sumo wrestler, no joke. I mean, he actually did look um, Japanese. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, really. Um, because they put so many fluids into him that he had increased in size and all his features were completely different, totally different. And he was covered in massive bruises all over him. And you just looked at him and had a sense that there has been an absolute battle to save his life. It was very shocking. And we were all absolutely devastated and frightened. It was frightening because we just, you couldn't recognize him. It just wasn't him. And I also, I could sense this other soul, which I later realized was the soul of the man who had very kindly um, offered his organ at death. So it was the soul of the liver, the soul of the man whose liver my dad now had. And we, just, we were so shaken. Oh, we go back and we go back 
to the hotel um, and I had to share a room with my mum and sister because I haven't got any money. <laughs> so I had to sneak in. <laughs> Luckily, my sister is a twin, an identical twin. <laughs> so they went up to the room. I'm stood, out, stood outside absolutely sobbing. I was inconsolable. And I had all these beautiful men going, oh, my God, are you OK? <laughs> I mean, that was so nice. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, stay away from me. And I managed to go upstairs and I shared a bed with my sister, like, you know, when we were little. And in the room, there's a clock and it's just flashing the time and I never stopped. I never slept, not for a minute. And I just kept watching this clock flashing at me. And I could not wait for it to reach, like, five o'clock so I could go, right, it's time to get up. We need to get to the hospital because I could feel his soul starting to withdraw from his body in fact I think it really the process had started in theatre I think and I was trying to get back to the hospital because I had a sense that he wanted me to shepherd his soul to death or to heaven or where, wherever you like to think that souls go they go they do definitely go somewhere but it's just a different state of consciousness I think and I've been both my granddad's death and now my dad's death as well but I've never been at any of my female relatives deaths and I find that really strange and all of them there's been some element of soul midwifery or death doula if you like in there and it was no different with my dad and we managed to sort of get up a bit later and get get back to the hospital and we spoke with the head honcho who was brilliant with us. He was so good with us, you know, because he'd really had one heck of a day the day before. I mean, talk about having a bad day at work. And then the next morning, early doors, he's in chatting to us. And the other surgeon, who was also excellent, who had been there and had had to page him, looked like he was living in a horror movie. He was traumatised. He looked traumatised. That was really quite unsettling and unnerving to see and we speak to them and they're saying well the next 24 hours are crucial um if we can get through that then he might have a chance but if we don't manage to stabilize him then it's starting to look very worrying and he might die and i'm already he's dead <laughs> i'm already there i'm literally walking his soul through portals towards death so um, it's like oh okay <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> Um, and then the next rest of that day was hideous and I was in and out of the room with my dad and I was with his soul and it was I just kept seeing he's at another portal or it was like a gateway um, and I know it's a cliche but we did actually go upstairs that looked a little bit like class. <laughs> I guess my mind had to have something you know had to create some picture to understand what was going on and I was walking him through them and I was, you know, sitting with him and I'm saying to him, thank you for everything you've done for me. Thank you for the difficult soul contract. Thank you for um, the abuse, because I know that that was what we agreed and you did it so well. And thank you for some other things like my dad um, used to write us stories when we were little. And I thanked him for that because it showed me that anybody can write if they want to and, and make a book. And so in my future, I'm going to write books. And so I thanked him 
of seeding that with me. And all the things that you do when you're with someone and they're dying and suddenly you just want to say, I love you. I love you. Thank you. I'm just taking a little breather. Just give me a moment. Thank you, thank you for your patience, thank you. And I was devastated that he was gonna die. And I was also very, very frightened because although our relationship had been an unpleasant one, he was still a major figure in my life. And I find that when death comes to an immediate family, the reshuffling of the dynamics is quite chaotic sometimes and certainly it's painful and difficult and I was just frightened of that I knew that was coming and I knew I mean we often say it don't we life will never be the same again and that's true because once the dead are gone it will never be the same again and we don't know what comes next and it's that the realm of the feminine, the unknown, the mystery, and that's the realm of the heart. And that's why I say the more you can be in your heart space, not that things will change or even look any different, just that it's going to be easier to cope with. And I had some tough things to say to my dad. And then, you know, a nurse ran in and said his kidneys have failed. I've got to give him dialysis right now. You can stay or you can go, but I'm doing it right now. And she just punctures a hole through sort of his neck or his shoulder. And I'm like, Ooh. And I, I'm really squeamish. I do not like anything. I don't, I've actually got a phobia of hospitals. <laughs> so I've already quite freaked out in the environment I'm in and the fact that my dad is dying and I'm being asked to shepherd his soul and everybody else is waiting to see that he lives it was quite quite the awkward situation and she does that and I'm like oh my god I'm just like run out and I'm basically in and out of his room and I'm crying and crying and crying relentlessly and I just the trauma was so strong I couldn't stop crying eventually this goes on for a while and then we go home we get up in the early morning and we get a call saying get to the hospital he's gonna die and we're running and oh my god and we managed to get a taxi and we managed to get there and the whole team it's a saturday and the whole team are that good that his consultant the head honcho this top surgeon the head of icu and his nurse all come in on days off in their own clothes, their casual clothes, to come and speak to us in a separate room to tell us we've done everything we can and we don't understand it. We don't know why he's not stabilised. The liver has taken perfectly, could not have taken any better. None of our tests are showing what's wrong. We just don't understand it but we're now at the point where he's, he's gonna die. 
And even if he came back at this point, he would be so severely brain damaged, he would not have a life. And then because people don't like death and they don't like to admit that everything's over and we're so, so into fighting for life, aren't we? We're so into survival. It's just so programmed into us that they're like, oh, but we could take him back to surgery and open him up and just have a look. But we do know that the liver's working perfectly, but maybe it would just give us some other clues. Well, I do not want that. So I'm like, well, you know what? I think he's dead. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry, I know you're all scientists in here and you all think that, you know, there's no such thing as a soul and that he's still alive. But my reality is that there is such a thing as a soul and that his soul has left his body. Um, but actually the kindest, most peaceful, most graceful thing that we can do for him is showing his body mercy and allow him to leave in peace. But nobody else agrees. So he goes back to surgery and they just find that it's messy inside of him. So there's a lot of fluid and it's everything's a bit sort of squashed and not looking good. And that he absolutely definitely would be very severely brain damaged should we bring him back. And it's highly unlikely that we would be able to bring him back. And with time, we reached the conclusion that we needed to switch off his life support. And I don't know if you've ever done this or done anything similar, where you've had to make a decision about somebody's life. I guess if you've got pets, you've maybe had to decide when it's time to put them to sleep. And we had to decide to switch off his life support. That's not good. It's not a good decision to have to make. But it's a gift that you give to that person in that moment. So we go in and they do their best to make it nice. So they keep keep them on drugs and they keep the ventilator on so that they um it's like a descent, a slow, slow death. So it's not as horrific for the people witnessing it. And we stood, all stood round and we watched the heart monitor counting down. Beep, beep, beep. Beep, 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 beep. And it's slow. And it has numbers. So it's literally like, and I'm shepherding his soul to the last portal before death. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got the numbers that are like, oh, yes, you've reached the... <laughs> 10th floor this is where heaven is you can leave him here kind of things so that I've got like very strange visuals going on because I'm quite clair clairvoyant so I could see the soul journey that I was taking him through and at the very last portal at the top before he went through he turned around and said to me things are about to get hard from here my life was already really hard so I was like what <laughs> And he said, but you be like the lighthouse, let the waves crash, but you keep on shining. I didn't know what he meant. And then he died. 
And my brother very kindly helped me to hug him because I'm not good with death. And so I didn't like the cold, stiff body. and <laughs> But I wanted to do it because I knew if I didn't, I'd regret it. So he very kindly helped me. And we went into a room, bereavement room. And on the wall was photographs, artwork, and they were lighthouses, massive storms, waves, huge waves crashing them. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> What's happening now? What's going to happen next? And then, you know, I grieved my dad and he couldn't be at my wedding, which was um, six weeks after his, his death. And that had been a very last minute rushed decision just before we found out that he was going to need a transplant. And I missed him terribly. And I felt such tremendous pain. But it found as well, you know, it came out in quite big, want to sort of say lumps. <laughs> So I know people talk about avalanches of grief, but mine wasn't like an avalanche. It was like neatly packaged. So I was just like, yeah, come on, just give it to me. Just give the grief to me. Just let me feel it. Let me feel it with every part of me. And it just packaged itself up and went. Um, and there's the process of adjusting life. And the thing that I found was if you listen to and um, my other episode, which was also about death, because, you know, we're doing death, um, which was called The Queen's Death, The State Funeral Symbolism, My Journey from Anger at the Monarchy to Love. If you've listened to that episode, you will know that my teacher and mentor taught me that at death, what the seeds that are in a person's heart energetically fall out and hit the earth and become part of the collective consciousness. So it's like the gift that they give us at death. And yes, I I, I really feel that and I believe that. And I, and But what happened with my dad was all of the karma, the heavy density from our soul contract died with him, which makes sense when you think about it, because it only existed because me and him allowed it to. <laughs> That's the truth. And... Because that went, I felt so much lighter. I felt so much lighter. I really felt so much lighter. And so grief and the journey from there was considerably easier. And that's the thing with death. Yes, it will be painful. Yes, it will be messy. It will most likely be unwelcome but it's also full of gifts if we allow ourselves to receive them. And I think that's it. I don't really want to go into anything else here now today. And I thank you for listening to me because I know that was quite a long-winded story, but I hope that it has reached you and touched you somehow. And I hope that you can feel my loving support, whether you're experiencing the death of a loved one now or in the future, or whether, like me, you're frightened of death and the pain of grief. Consider this a big hug. Consider that we are one.
And as I come to terms with it, you also come to terms with it too. I love you all, darlings. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe so that you are the first to know about new episodes. And I love to take this journey with you of becoming a rebel of the heart, one show at a time. Thank you for listening. Goodbye, angels. You've been listening to the Healing the Patriarchy with Love podcast with Luna Anna. Subscribe and follow to join the tribe of rebel hearts.